Welcome to Open Deeply Season 3, as we burn down shame and reclaim our power. The truths society pushes into the shadows are the very things that connect us. Truths around sexual authenticity, the wisdom of plant medicine, the pursuit of equity, and beyond. To open deeply, as Jack Cornfield says, takes tremendous courage, a warrior spirit. This unconventional path takes just that. So join us. Together, we have the courage to open deeply. Here are your hosts, Sunny Megatron and Kate Laurie. Welcome to Open Deeply. I'm Sunny Megatron, clinical sexologist and sex educator, and my co-host is sex-positive psychotherapist, Kate Laurie. This week, our guest is Alex Belser, PhD, a clinical scientist, author, and licensed psychologist with a focus on psychedelic research. At Yale University, he's a co-investigator for a study investigating psilocybin treatment for people with OCD. He's explored the potential of novel therapies using psilocybin, MDMA, ketamine, and DMT to help alleviate human suffering and treat indications, including depression, anxiety, addiction, and PTSD. His most recent book, Embark, Psychedelic Therapy for Depression, A New Approach for the Whole Person, which was co-authored with Dr. Bill Brennan, will be published later this year. Dr. Belser has co-founded a number of leading psychedelic organizations, including the NYU Psychedelic Research Group, Nautilus Sanctuary, Adelia Therapeutics, where he served as CCO, and he also served at CCO at Cybin, where he chaired the Scientific Advisory Board. His other main area of interest is mental health for LGBTQIA plus people, and his last book is Queering Psychedelics, From Oppression to Liberation in Psychedelic Medicine. His work's been featured in the media with coverage in the New York Times, The Atlantic, Rolling Stone, and a lot more. Dr. Belser is also a Hatha and Kundalini yoga teacher. There's just so much. You can learn more in his personal practice websites, and those links are in our episode description. Now, really quick, before we get started, I need to remind you that Open Deeply podcast is made for your entertainment and informational desires only. The podcast, any opinions we share, and any resources, including social media posts and emails from us, are not therapy, medical care, or professional advice, and they don't create a client-patient relationship. In this episode, we talk mainly about the positive influences of psychedelics, but please do your own research and get your own medical and legal support since psychedelic experiences can vary wildly and in some cases be incredibly difficult. None of the information, opinions, suggestions, resources, or exercises mentioned in this podcast should be used without getting clearance from your healthcare provider and receiving professional legal counsel. All opinions, information, and ideas expressed by the guest as well are solely their own. And if you need emergency mental health or medical help, please call 911 or 988 or go to your nearest emergency center. Here's our conversation with Alex Belzer. Alex, I'm so glad to have you on our podcast. You know, I, I went out to Denver to the Psychedelic Science Convention, and that's where I saw you and Justin Natoli, who we had on a couple of episodes ago, uh, talking about querying psychedelics, and you were the editor of Querying Psychedelics. And in this interview, we're going to talk about many things, 
But it, that was my first introduction to both of you. And I thought you were both so wonderful. So I'm happy to have you here today. It's such a delight to be here. It's, thanks for having me. Yeah. And Justin's a, a really becoming a good friend. It's so, it's so nice to, to both be able to come on. Oh, yeah. wonderful. Yeah, I'm excited as well. I sadly wasn't at the conference, but I keep hearing I keep hearing things. So I'm very excited for this conversation. So I get to dig in myself. So I'm going to start with the first question. Do you feel that psychedelics can help with the coming out process? And if so, how? Oh, yeah. Well, maybe you've heard anecdotes of this. I mean, first of all, almost everything that I'm going to say today, there's not like a lot of money in the funding for the research for the official randomized control trial findings. But that doesn't mean that the absence of evidence means it doesn't actually happen. And I have so many stories of, uh, let's start with like older queer people who didn't come out when they were 10 or never came out or 15 or 20. They're coming out in later in their middle life in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. And a lot of people have come to me and they've, and maybe you've heard stories like these as well, where they drink ayahuasca for the first time, they take MDMA with friends for the first time, or even, you know, take a little bit of psilocybin or even cannabis. And they have an experience of their body, of their gender, of their history, of their sense of identity. And this is what psychedelics does, is it, it, it takes our rigid sense and stories and identities and allows them to become a little looser, a little less preset, a little like less over-determined. And, and what I've heard from many people is that they get over something that was keeping them from seeing themselves in the way that they really are, which is that they, they have a, you know, old and older gay men as attraction to other gay men. And that his internalized homophobia was what was keeping him from doing this. And I think that psychedelics consistently seem to at least make us more consciously aware as a non-specific amplifier of conscious process, psychedelic meaning mind opening, make us more aware of our own internal psychic architecture. And if, if some of that architecture is internalized transphobia and internalized homophobia that keeps us in the closet, then I think that psychedelics have the potential to be really healing in that way for people who are, you know, tra trapped in a cis heteronormative sense of self. Mm -hmm. Is there an example of that that you would like to share? Well, there's actually a great few essays in a whole section in querying psychedelics on self-acceptance, right? You know, one of the main things that gender and sexual diverse people have a difficulty with is that we're exposed to allostatic load all of our lives. The thousands of messages that we receive that we are of stigma, of discrimination, of peer victimization, of bullying, of rejection from our families in our locker rooms in school, at our places of worship. And... So we internalize this into a self-hating, self-rejecting process and the journey towards accepting ourselves as we are, as a valid, beautiful, prideful way of being, is different for everybody. There's a whole section in Queering Psychedelics, this anthology of chapters from different authors who people go to Burning Man and there's a, there's a really lovely story about a person who takes medicine at Burning Man. And uh, he has a different experience of his gender that he's like, I'm not entirely straight anymore. And actually, I'm, it's confusing and bewildering. And I don't necessarily even have a way to understand it. I, as a, th as a therapist, as a psychologist, have worked in a randomized controlled trial of MDMA, which is sometimes called Molly or ecstasy or E. MDMA as a treatment for severe PTSD. So people who have severe trauma and post-traumatic stress symptoms from the trauma, 
I was working with a person who was a vet, a veteran from multiple, multiple intense traumatic combat experiences. And ostensibly we're working on that trauma in the MDMA therapy. But this person over the course of months of working together and the course of multiple sessions with MDMA, they came, and I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm using they pronouns in order to sort of de-identify them, but they, they came to change their pronouns from the pronouns that were assigned to them at birth. They came to change their preferred, the name that they, that they wanted to use in public. They were in a relationship with somebody who was self-identified as queer, but it required a lot of relational renegotiation. And it changed, they changed their gender identity and some of their sexual identity in the course of their public life. And it was hard and beautiful and certainly a, occasioned or maybe catalyzed by an intense process of psychedelic therapy. Yeah. Mm. Mm. yeah. One thing that struck me, you had said that psychedelics are an amplifier of the conscious process. And that just like hit me. So mm. I just wanted to point that out for anyone else listening along too. that. I, yeah, really struck me. Yeah. Psychedelia mind manifesting is what it means. But, you know, this idea that good trip, bad trip, a trip into the cosmos, a trip into your like this, the hyper anxiety that somebody's going to come and knock at the door or the phone's going to ring, whatever is happening in your mind, it may amplify that in a non-specific way. So if you build a beautiful space with a deep intention with other people that feels sacred and feels safer and feels welcoming to all the parts of ourselves, then then that will be amplified. Those experiences of, of the, the sort of threading of love, intention, a cultivation of a group process or a therapeutic process, which is warm and deeply dignifying and respectful. If you're, and there's somebody who says this beautifully in the book, if you're drinking ayahuasca in a circle where people think that your sexual identity, your orientation is a sin and evil. And even if they're not saying it, but you know it, that also can become amplified. That sort of latent experience of having to hide a part of ourselves because we know that it's not really going to be welcome mm -hmm. in this circle. This is, there's a degree of safety here, enough that maybe I'll even come back, but not enough safety that I'm actually going to show up in my full personhood. And that is, um, it's not okay, I don't think, for people. I mean, I think to some extent this is going to be true in any circle. There's no perfect place. But I don't think it's okay to have endemic rejection like that in our psychedelic circles. And certainly not in our legal. I, I can't really speak to people's spiritual and religious backgrounds. I'm, I'm, I'm a psychologist, not a priest. But I, as a, as a psychologist, we, we can do better in the clinic, too. We can mm -hmm. really queer the, queer the clinic as well. Yeah, I mean, Wonderful. because it's a nonspecific amplifier and because there's so many different therapists, shamans, et cetera, every, you know, so many different people are getting trained in it, rolling down the pike. We really do have room, I would imagine, to start to have like clinics or retreats for queer people, clinics and retreats for black and brown people, all of that so that people can feel really, really safe. Because I, I know there's a lot of folks that are, are still avoiding it because they're like, this doesn't feel safe enough to me. I can't find a setting that's for me. I think that the, the psychedelic movement has, in the last 20 years, has been growing up. I don't know if we're in 
early adolescence or where we're at. But part of the maturation process, and I, I wish this were available from the get-go, and it has been in certain ways, which is like, you know, affinity circles. And I think that, you know, so for example, if a retreat center wanted to do, or a, a clinic, you know, like a research center wanted to do to work with LGBTQIA plus people, then we have to be thoughtful about, okay, well, what does that mean, right? That's a giant umbrella with really divergent identities. And, you know, I'm a white, cis, queer, gay man. And my experience is not the same as other other people under that big umbrella. And oftentimes people choose to sort of split this into like queer and lesbian women, trans, non-binary and gender fluid folks. Like a third category might be gay and bi pan men or men who have sex with men. There's different ways of defining the sort of LGBTQIA2S categories. All I think in the effort of creating affinity circles where people feel like they can really fully inhabit a safer space, it's a little pragmatically hard. Sometimes sometimes it comes down to scheduling. Sometimes it comes down to the competency of the facilitators and the facilitator being a person in that affinity group identity or, or not, or having a mix of people. And so, you know, I think that there's like a little bit of a struggle there for capacity and matching and funding and all of that kind of stuff. And I think people can tell by the context, but can you clearly define like what an affinity circle is for maybe people that might not know? Yeah. I mean, I, and, and you, you all probably can say more about this too. I mean, like, so for example, I mean, there's longstanding traditions of having group therapy but having an affinity group in the sense of like let's have a let's have a women's circle for specifically for survivors or you know people who have mm -hmm. experienced sexual abuse or trauma because it feels safer if if their perpetrator was a cisgender man or a straight man to not have that identity in in the room and there's been a movement and it's you know there's complications here for men's circles right there there are and then there's a there's places for queer and trans bipoc people so there's the, you know the sort of intersections of different identities and usually this is around race ethnicity and sexual and gender identity and 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 sex but it could be potentially around nationality, identity status, neurodivergence and neurotypical status. It could be around ableist and you know body size and all sorts of different class categories. I've seen people feel more welcomed. Um, mm -hmm. At least that's how that's what they report. And and I'd like to circle back to bullying when you're a queer kid and you've been bullied in school and and certainly I'll hear a client say you know some self-deprecating comment, you know, like, I'm so ugly or, 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 or some, something. And one of the first things I say is, who's the first person who said that to you? And I talk to them about how a lot of times the, the messaging or sometimes even the nonverbals or the behavior of others that are negative get internalized and then it becomes our own voice. And I was wondering if you could speak more about how psychedelics can heal bullying, especially for queer kids. When you say that to the person you're working with, does it does it land sometimes, or how how does it go usually? <laughs> because I, I've had so many different experiences, so I'm sort of curious about this. You know, I I grew up in Indiana in the '90s, which was not a gay welcoming place. The KKK headquarters were a few miles away. You know, deep red, pre maga extremely religious, extremely rejecting, extremely homophobic. I, I don't even think transphobia was understood to be a thing because people didn't know that that sort of experience 
could have existed. I certainly didn't until I grew up a little bit and entered the, the wider, less provincial world. And I, my dissertation research was on how to prevent suicide. Because mm. in my community, especially queer and gay men, by a pan man, there's just, I mean, I'll speak to that because I know that yeah, that group better. There's just so much quiet suicide. Quiet in the sense that people die, their family organizes something, nobody really knows what happened. But the rates of suicide amongst queer LGBTQ kids is, is the highest rate of any population, any population. Sometimes you'll hear in the literature that, oh, older men in their 50s, once they, 60s, once they like leave their job and status, like they have the highest rates of suicidalities. I don't think it's true when you actually look at the data. It's, it's certainly trans kids, it's certainly trans kids of color and LGBTQ kids in general. There's a lot of self-harm, a lot of suicidal thinking and certainly attempts. And I think that psychedelics, you know, I, I, I mean, I think that the experience of bullying and the ways that queer people are five times more likely to be sexually abused as children, like it's not, there's something in the culture that is a systematic weaponization of a type of violence and hostility, literally literal violence and also psychological violence against people who are not, you know, don't fit the mold. And I don't know if psychedelics are a cure-all. I don't think they're a panacea, that's for sure. But um, in my experience, so I, I've worked in, you know, directly in studies to say like, okay, what if we try to help explain to folks that they've been exposed to this thing called sexual minority stress, which is literally the thousands that there's this burden of stress on the body. It shows up in higher cortisol levels. It shows up in higher inflammation levels in LGBTQ people. It shows up in higher rates of alcoholism and self-harm and higher rates of depression and higher rates of anxiety and maybe more, more sex and more problematic sort of validation processes regarding who were screwing and who were not screwing. And, and, and to say, this is not for no reason. This is not just, be, this is not just you. This is actually a structural systemic thing that happens to almost everybody in our cultures today. And that kind of consciousness raising can be really liberatory. It can be like, oh, um, like, I, you know, I'm in, I'm in, I live in Brooklyn, right? And I have like a PhD. And so most of my friends are kind of like on the left end of the sex, sexual identity, gender spectrum in terms of their understanding and the discourse. But many, many, many adult queer people still believe that they are sinful and wrong and going to hell because of who they have sex with and because of who they are. And to have somebody say, that's not doesn't have to be so like you don't have to believe that is powerful and psychedelic medicine is a catalyst in that you know something that might take there's this like adage that oh i did psychedelics and then i had five years of therapy in one night or something like that i don't believe in that really because i think that it's more complex than that but it can help get underneath the root belief system and if the root belief system is one that i am unlovable I am not ever going to be enough. And if that was a message that we heard from our families and our culture, it can, it can actually kind of shake that up a little bit and allow for something else to grow. That's been my experience. I have a really quick question. I, I hadn't even thought about this because I'm just 
getting trained with fluence, with psychedelic harm reduction and integration and all that. So I'm, I'm, I'm in the learning mode. And I'm just curious, like with something like ketamine that's like legal in California to offer as therapy, I don't know what the age limit is. Like, I mean, mm. certainly a child can be on Ritalin. What are the ethics around, yeah. like say teenagers, et cetera, related to legal stuff like ketamine for therapy? Do you know? I'm sure you do. Well, ketamine is used all the time for kids, actually, all the time. In the ER, it's the most common, or it's a very common, I mean, I'm not a physician, ER physician, but kids love ketamine. I mean, there's, I've seen talks about this in the sense that if, if a kid goes into the thing and they fell out of a tree and they, they dislocated their shoulder or they broke their arm and it needs to be reset, the ER physician will oftentimes administer a good dose of ketamine because it's both approved for analgesia and you can do a type of anesthesia where they're not fully out, but they're sort of just calm and then they can reset the bone. And then, it, you know, and then it's metabolized in the system relatively quickly. So within, you know, an hour, they're back to walking around. Or if you do it IV, even even faster. So it's given to kids all the time. And, and, and of course, one of the reasons it's not used as much as it used to be ketamine is that there is this thing called emergent delirium. I mean, when we would give ketamine to adults, it, the ketamine is this beautiful drug. 1973, Park Davis used it. It's on the WHO list of essential medicines, the World Health Organization's list. It's the most common used human anesthetic in the world. It gets this weird like horse tranquilizer thing, which is ridiculous. It is used in veterinary medicine, like almost all human anesthetics, but it was developed and used and is still used as a human anesthetic. For kids, the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, for any legal drug wants to incentivize the pharmaceutical company that is developing the drug, psychedelic or otherwise, to do a pediatric study. So this means the, the FDA, for example, the way they do this is they give you I think they give you five years of, if you develop a drug, they give you five years of n no competition and they won't, they, they'll give you exclusivity for five years. But if, if you run an additional trial to see if it works in adolescence, and this is something that I know that MAPS might be considering, which is like MDMA, it looks like it might be approved for PTSD. Could it be useful MDMA as a treatment for trauma for PTSD in adolescents, in 15 year olds, for example? Uh, and so the FDA wants them to run that clinical trial and they will incentivize them by extending their exclusivity in the market, which is usually the most financially lucrative period of six months by six months. So sometimes they can, the company can make more in that six months than they did in the first three years of exclusivity. So we're likely to see randomized controlled trials with adolescents. That being said, it's a third rail in the culture, right? You don't want kids taking illegal drugs. And there have been some people who've touched that rail and gotten a little burned, which is that these are drugs that have a cultural you know, experience. MDMA has been, and ketamine are used underground. They, you know, they were used in, when I was growing up in the 90s, coming out of the closet, if you went to the gay club and danced, like a lot of people are taking MDMA. If you go to a gay party today, a lot of people are taking ketamine. So these are complicated questions. But I do think that adolescent psychedelic use will be done. It will be done ethically with parental involvement, of course, and full consent. And I think it will, we'll see if it will be helpful. I'll be curious to learn how it goes. Okay. So it's just a matter of some trials with the FDA. Some studies need to be done with adolescents, and then we could maybe see it in the next, I don't know, five years or so? Yeah. Pro yeah. Probably. Like, so for example, if MDMA 
were to be reviewed and approved by the FDA next year, it's likely that the sponsor will run a trial within the first five years in an adolescent group. I can't say what these companies will do, but that's possible. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. So in your presentation, Queering Psychedelics at the Denver Psychedelic Sciences Conference, you touched on a rather profound and probably surprising to some history of psychedelics being used in tandem with conversion therapy. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, well, it's kind of like the sword that cuts both ways, which is that, wow, psychedelics, they can cause ego dissolution and ego death, and you can have like a rebirth experience, which is exactly the rationale that psychiatrists in the heyday of psychoanalysis and transpersonal efforts in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s said, wow, this would be a great way to treat homosexuality because homosexuals uh, were seen in a psychoanalytic tradition. And so people like Stan Groff and, and, and many others practiced in this way. We know that the DSM included homosexuality as a disorder until, I think it was, was it 73? And there's this idea that we could break down the psyche of the gay homosexual man with psychedelics and therapy, and then build it back up in a way that he would have satisfying sexual relationships with his women partners, uh, woman partner. This is explicitly actually what was done. So for example, Tim Leary, leader of Harvard's research group, said, quote, LSD is a specific cure for homosexuality. His colleague, Dr. Richard Alpert, who later became Ram Das, and who himself was said he was attracted to men, although he never used the word gay or bi. Uh, Ram Das published his own, in the peer-reviewed PubMed literature, to conversion therapy. He worked with homosexual men, and he touts his you know use of psilocybin, LSD, psychedelic treatment as a cure for homosexuality, reporting that they had satisfying sex with their women partner. You know, we see Masters in Houston, who wrote this very famous book called The Varieties of Psychedelic Experience, said that they they treated people with uh, mescaline, cactus medicine, and they said that mescaline led towards, quote, heterosexualization. Cary Grant, famous Hollywood actor, went to a place called Hollywood Hospital, famous psychedelic hospital, which had an explicit program of psychedelic conversion therapy. And and most of these treatments were, um, you know, certainly not only legal, but they were voluntary. Queer people, LGBTQ people would show up. At the time, it was mainly male homosexuals and female homosexuals or lesbianism were the terms. And then for trans folks, the term was, I'm using air quotes, transsexualism. And so people would show up oftentimes and volunteer to take psychedelics and intensive therapy to try to cure themselves of this dreaded thing. And I I don't really know what to say about it. I mean, the, the list goes on and on. It happened in the UK. It happened in continental Europe. And in France, adolescent boys were caught kissing and they were deemed to be sexual deviants. They were thrown on a locked psychiatric unit and they were repeatedly given shock therapy treatments, a very high dose LSD, very high dose, 800 micrograms of LSD, which is eight doses, eight tabs of acid. And it's, it's a, it's, it was a type of torture. So there, there's a, it runs the gamut from people who said, yes, I want to do this to people who were coercively forced to do it. I think it was all within a coercive system where it was literally better to be straight than it was to be yourself, where your name could be published in the paper anytime you went out to a gay bar, 
you know, your career could be ruined. This is this is a time when the mafia owned all the gay bars because they would pay off the police and the police wouldn't raid the mafia bars because then the people could go to the bar <laughs> so they wouldn't have their name published in the paper the next day and have their, you know, have you know, they would lose their family and their job and their status in the community. So it was a rational decision to stay in the closet and it was a rational decision to try to become straight. And it's terrifying. And it continues in psychedelic circles to this day in many religious traditions, in many ayahuasca churches, which have do a lot of top-down gender sorting, various stereotype roles for men and women, and pants and dresses and various gender stereotype roles about you have to stay on this side and that side. There's like very strict separation. Mm. And I think a lot of that is totalizing of gender. It's stereotyping what it means to be a cis man and, and a woman and much less having very little attention to other diverse ways of expressing ourselves. And, you know, the psychedelic clinic itself, and I'll, I'll end here, you know, we have this male-female diet, this idea that when you go into the clinic, you're going to work with two therapists, and one's going to be a man, and one's going to be a woman, which sort of elicits this mother-father transference in the psychoanalytic tradition. Uh, and in the transpersonal tradition, sort of essentialist ideas of like divine sacred femininity and design sacred mm. masculinity, which I think is extremely problematic because it doesn't really leave room for other expressions. And I, I think it does harm to patients, cl clients, and, and the therapists alike. I think all of us, it's very constraining. And it, it, and this is a hidden history. This is something that I was in the movement for 20 years doing psychedelic research and no one ever talked about, no one ever mentioned. It's really only in the last couple of years that we're starting to like unearth this deplorable, scandalous, outrageous history. Wow. Mm. Yeah. And that, you know, and so much torture in that. And, and, you know, when you think about the fact that with psychedelics, you know, it makes you more suggestible. I think it's so important for us to know this history for a long list of reasons, but also that, that, you know, when you use it to like change someone's authenticity to something that's inauthentic in, in any way, I mean, it's, it's important to know these stories because, you know, as you know, history can repeat itself in many different ways. Yeah. And I think it's important for us to know that psychedelics will make us suggestible and, and, and can be dangerous in that way if it's in the wrong hands. It's not a mistake that MKUltra and the CIA studied these drugs like LSD for their hypersuggestible features, which is that there's this, I'll just say specifically, there's this, I think, myth idea that psychedelics catalyze toward the good. And that if you just take the medicine, you'll get better. But I, I really think it's the set and setting and the idea of what we imbue into the work is important. And if that, if what you imbue into the work is mind control, coercion, abuse, a type of rejection of certain parts of ourselves and allowing only other parts to be in the room, that's a powerful lever. And it's, it's a type of psychological oppression. And the fact that in my community, psychologists, psychiatrists, therapists, not only participated, but really like led the way in like creating a thought architecture that allowed this form of abuse to persist for the mad, bad, and sad among us. I think it's really, it, it, we didn't have to put pe queer people in jail. We just made them into sexual deviants and psychopaths and made them pathological and then completely marginalized us. Right. Yeah, I think all everything that you're saying is so important as we go forward for it, you know, and it, it's tragic that you went so long 
researching psychedelics before you unearthed all of this. It's shocking, not shocking, knowing if you know our history. Switching gears a little bit, I know that you've heard at this point in your career thousands of psychedelic stories. And I was wondering if you would be willing to share a few stories that you feel are particularly impactful. I've listened to you on other other podcasts. You've shared some stories related to people that have cancer and psychedelics. But, uh, you know, I'm opening it up for you to share whatever you would like. Um, I know you've got you could probably give us countless (laughs) stories. I'm just asking you to pick maybe one or two. I, I just... I'm smiling because I'm um, one of my focuses has been to sit down and talk with people in depth about what it's like. And most of the psychedelic movements have really been about like, let's give them a battery of questionnaires and just make sure that we get the numbers, the metrics right, like that there's change scores are significant and we publish that. But to actually understand in long form, in depth, what people's experience, subjective internal experiences is, you know, you don't see it from the outside, but then if you ask people about it, um, we started a study treating people with cancer, end-of-life distress, depression, and anxiety associated with um, life-threatening illness at, at NYU. And it, we started in 2006. And, you know, it took us a while to, to get it going. But um, I, had, I had worked with a woman who, this is a psilocybin study with psychotherapy. So they get psycho, the, the people who come in get psychotherapy, they're paired with two therapists and they do a lot of preparatory work beforehand. And then there's a session, a full day session in the room. And then there's a lot of integration sessions afterwards. So there's a thoughtful therapy. She and many people, this is a high enough dose that many people had what some people call a mystical experience. A lot of people had very strong physical embodied experiences, right? It's not just like something that happens in the cerebral realms. It's something that happens like in the full, <laughs> the, the full um, uh, chakra, you know, system of, of the, the fluids and the bone and the viscera of the body. She had an experience of seeing kind of like a, a, a place where they were burning bodies. And... Yeah. And, and then she, she faded out in her vision, her inner vision into like a field where people were buried. And she saw that she saw in her body, how did she put it? She said that this, she saw what looked like an umbilical cord attaching from her and reaching out to the universe. And she said that this was the umbilical cord that, and a lot of her work had been about her birth and her mother and her relationship with her mom. And she felt something in her abdomen. She really felt like was feeling something happening here. And she said, you know, I realized that this was the umbilical cord that I, that, I, that this is how I, ch- I chose. I choose, I choose this, this, this life. Knowing, I choose this even now knowing that this is how I came in and that this is how I will end and saw her own burial, her own return to the, literally to the earth in her vision, saw the cutting of that umbilical cord to the universe. And I mean, we talk about as therapists confrontation with death and existential concern, and it's sort of heady until you like, but I really um, was moved by that really. I really felt the way that she was like processing something really beyond speech about what it means to like be alive and to stop being alive. 
So I was really moved by that. And I really loved working on that study. I hadn't gotten to work with cancer patients before that. And I think that there is a lot of promise in psychedelic therapy to help us stop running from death. And, you know, I know in, in on this podcast, we deal with like sex and death and transformation and rebirth and power and intimacy. And I, I think that to the extent that we we can only hide from it in our lives for so long and we get really good at hiding, avoiding it, distracting from it, channeling it um, into other things that are socially acceptable. But there it is. Mm. It's always possible. It's always here with us. And it's it's actually can be quite beautiful and, and makes allows for the opening of some sort of grace. I don't mean Christian grace per se necessarily, but I think something that is beyond the mundane of everyday life. Mm. Wow. Yeah. So in your book, Queering Psychedelics, there is a chapter that is called Dungeons of Perception, how the psychedelic and kink community can learn from each other to the benefit of the queer community. Yeah, I want to know more about that. Can you tell us? Yeah, absolutely. I should probably get the book out. It's So this is the, the idea of this incredible contribution is that uh, look, one of the controversies, this what I call areas of psychedelic friction, has been how do you consent to taking psychedelics and having an expanded state of consciousness? And then once you're taking that, like, how can you even like have, like, when, when you sit down with people say, you're going to have, you're going to see visions of ecstasy, or you might go through hell realms, or you might have an experience of what feels like dying. And people say, okay, sure, I'll sign up for that. But you don't really understand it. So how can you do a full informed, enhanced consent? And then when you are taking medicine, oftentimes people would want and benefit from like a handhold or a hand on the shoulder, some consensual and supportive touch from their therapy team. And so how can you consent to that ahead of time when they're in everyday headspace? And then how can you also like maybe do a double consent process in the moment? And the community is kind of figuring it out, but the kink and the BDSM communities have been dealing with this for decades, right? Like there's there's a, a rich cultural context. It's not the only one around consent for touch, but there's a rich cultural context about how do you voice and negotiate both ahead of time and in the space, especially as we traverse non-ordinary states of consciousness, which I use that term very broadly, right? It's, it could be through shamanic work, it could be through breath work, it could be through psychedelic medicine, and certainly non-ordinary states can be occasioned by intense, profound, kinky, sexual BDSM sort of experiences. And even through meditation, there might even be some like similarities here, right? And But the process for for learning, how can the psychedelic community learn from this community? And I think that when done well, what I have seen and heard is that the kink community does, when done well, can do an incredible job of creating safer places in community, of teaching and modeling and mentoring other people for how to voice consent in, in both or multiple roles in a way that like therapists never really learned how to. Like when I was doing my training as a therapist, like we didn't really, there's this idea that you're supposed to have the client sign a form for consent, but and you're supposed to psychoeducate them, like hey, this might happen for you, but I don't think that the psychotherapy community, I think actually one of the problems of the psychotherapy community historically is that there's this lineage of power asymmetry where there's the psychiatrist or the therapist that has the power and there's not really a thoroughgoing assessment of what it means to be in a power asymmetry when you're sitting across 
the room from somebody who's in the position of the client in that given session. And so the King community might really offer something beautiful for that. What are you, I don't know, what are your thoughts about like the crossover between kink and BDSM and consent and touch and, and non-ordinary consciousness. Yeah. You know, I, I agree with everything you said and it's, it's difficult because when you're, you are in that non-ordinary state of consciousness, like you said, you don't know what's going to happen, what you're going to consent to and for what reasons and are they real authentic reasons? And there is absolutely no perfect way or perfect answer. But I think, as you said, when done well, that the kink community really has developed a lot of frameworks that get us as close as we can get to mitigating potential harm, potential violations of consent, et cetera, et cetera, and helping us really tap into what our authentic wants, needs, limits are in the moment, again, as best we can. Yeah. And I just want to, and and thank you for bringing this up. So, so Queering Psychedelics is a, a, an anthology of chapters, and this is from Dr. Denise Renier. The article is called Dungeons of Perception, How the Psychedelic and King Community Can Learn from Each Other to the Benefit of the Queer Community. And it's it's in the book if you want to check it out. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I think I want to, I, I also want to be like really clear, that like in these studies, there's been a huge scandal and controversy around inappropriate touch. And so, as somebody who teaches psychotherapy, right, to, to people who are like just starting out, like I think that we need to cultivate more complex discourses about how we can talk about erotics and sex. And I think that is actually separate and related, but separate from the conversation about just informed consent for touch. And and a lot there's a movement even towards in the psychedelic therapy movement to just say, let's just not have any touch at all whatsoever. Like you can't even like do hugging, you know, before or after your last session sort of thing. And I think that there's something that, and, and there's really a consensus in the field that, there, that, that consensual touch can be reparative. It can be healing. It can be it, even to deny it. Some people have claimed is could be reprising a sort of enactment of neglect and harm. Uh, and so I'm talking about, you know, non-sexual touch, but I think that we, we need to be able to talk about these things in deeper and richer ways. And maybe they're not all public conversations too. I think if we go towards a prohibitionist, sex phobic understanding where the therapist like can't talk about erotic transference and countertransference in the room, that does no service to anyone going to therapy. I think we need to create, be able to have those conversations in training and in group supervision and in clinical supervision, because to pretend like it doesn't exist is an invitation for disaster, certainly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we could have a whole episode just on that, like just, you know, sexuality and psychedelics and like, how do you give space for people to be authentic? And how do you keep people safe simultaneously, especially if they have a sexual abuse history or something like that? I mean, that's like a huge topic with very, you know, people that are very opinionated about it and have had their own personal experiences. And yeah, it's a big topic. So Alex, you have been involved in the psychedelic academic community for two decades now, right? Two decades plus. Yeah. And I'm curious at this point, because you've heard it all, I imagine. I'm wondering what fascinates you now, either in, in the climate or with psychedelics themselves, just whatever lights you up regarding the topic. Wow. Um, I am. 
I'm in love with the potential and the sort of broadening horizon of so many people getting involved. When I went to my first psychedelic conference in 2001, we're talking about like 150 people. And then 23 years later, there's 15,000 people in Denver. And so when you have that many humans who have a sincere, and I think most of them like a really earnest interest in the potentialities of this medicine, this, this work, it's beautiful. I, I, I will say that the thing that I'm concerned about, and this, this leads to my hope and, and, and beauty, which is that I am concerned that there's actually a narrowing of the discourse that, that 20 years ago, it was much more open. Like you could talk about psychedelics for the betterment of well people, as my friend Bob Jesse puts it. And now the discourse is really about psychedelics specifically for specific medical DSM indications to get it through the sort of structures of regulatory approval, which is, which is great. And I've, I'm a huge fan of that, but it's also not the only, it constrains our imagination because it doesn't allow us to consider that the question, what are psychedelics? Mm. Mm-hmm. What are they? What do they mean? What are they doing? What are the quote mechanisms of actions that what's actually happening in the human subjective experience? And what does it mean to heal and get better both for the individual and for the collective? And I think that with psychedelics, you know, we're, we have many lost lineages of tradition from shamanic ancestral lineages, the Shapipo doctores, like the masters, like really have something to teach us. And I feel a little bit like psychedelics is a little bit like taking like an infant baby to the ocean for the first time. You know, you, <laughs> you, you walk them down to the shore and you kind of hold them up and then you kind of dip their little toes in the, the, the water and they kind of squeal and giggle and cry. And, and then you come back the next year and the next year, and then they kind of like run out to the shore and then they, they run back from the water as toddlers. And then as children, they sort of belly flop in and roll around and they get their boogie boards. And, and then with psychedelics, we're doing this sort of same thing. Like we're just having people sort of like wear an eye mask and close their eyes and like go inward. But is it possible to combine the technology of human consciousness that we have with psychological practices, mindfulness practices, holotropic practices, ecstatic practices, yogic practices, pranayamic practices, other forms of expression broadly defined as we grow up, as the child learns to swim and swim even beyond the breakers, gets on the surfboard, and then eventually builds a little wave-bearing vessel and like sets sail for the next island over, which is how humans populated the islands of the earth and mm. I, and became wayfarers. I think that we're still really in our childhood. And I, I, I think that we need to liberate ourselves from a constraining mental paradigm to understand what on earth it is that's happening when people take psychedelic medicine. Mm. Yeah, I, I love that because as a registered art therapist and also a, a certified EMDR therapist, like I, I love the idea of combining some of these things, even if it's just an integration. And I, I've seen what you're talking about, where sometimes, you know, when I've been in a, in a group or in a classroom and I'll ask a question that's challenging. Sometimes I've felt the crickets and tumbleweeds. It feels like everyone is so focused on getting things approved by our government that if you say anything controversial that might threaten everything getting approved in some way, then everybody just shuts down. They get really quiet, you know, Uh and just broadening and really talking about all the 
potentials, the things that could be great and beautiful and creative and lush. And then also talking about the things that could go wrong. I, you know, I, I think, you know, I agree with you that having that broad conversation is so important. Um, mm-hmm. But I understand the fears as well, because we do want to get some of these things approved. Yeah, and there's room for both. But like the gay rights equality movement was originally like a liberatory movement, a more radical movement, and it became a more, you know, marriage assimilationist movement politically over time to get approval, which was important and necessary. And also, I think it collapsed for the culture, some of our sense of what was possible. Mm-hmm. You know, I have to say, I have learned so much just from this conversation and, you know, you touching on us have needing to collectively liberate ourselves from the constraints and, and the preconceived notions and the stigma and the, you know, the myths and all of those things, even when it comes down to everyday folks like, like myself, I'm not really involved in the psychedelic movement and and I'm sure a lot of our listeners as well. So I want to thank you so much for just this is such a confusing topic for folks and zeroing in on what the issues are, what we need to understand, et cetera, in such a succinct, easy way. Cause wow, my mind is blown and I am not even on psychedelic. (laughs) (laughs) You've expanded my mind. Thank you, Sonny, for saying so. (laughs) And I want to remind listeners, if you enjoyed this conversation as much as we did and you don't want to miss everything else we've got coming, please hit the subscribe button and we will see you back again here soon where we once again together dare to open deeply. Thank you for listening. Find us online at opendeeplypodcast.com and on social media at Kate Marie or at Sunny Megatron. Check back bi-weekly for new episodes. And until next time, remember, your authentic truth is only found when you dare to open deeply. Intro and outro voice by the queen goddess, Frenchie Davis. Intro and outro music, by the Baltimore Bull, Rob Burrell.